You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Advent is a wonderful time. I love it. I love, I love the anticipation. I love the expectation, the waiting. It just builds excitement. And so we're excited. We're excited about the birth of the Christ child. We're excited what that means for us. Of course, as Christians now, we know that unlike this text that Sarah read for us, where the Jews were still waiting for the expectation of the coming of the Christ, we now live in that time after the coming of Christ. And so we can celebrate his birth more like a birthday than we do celebrate it like a, an expected moment. And we can also anticipate his second coming, right? And, his, and what that will mean for us. And so it's not just the original advent or coming of Christ, but it's the second one. During this Advent season, we titled our, our seasonal uh, idea, Coming Home. So we, it's this idea of Christ coming home, like the return of Christ, and this idea of Christ coming to our own hearts, that we, this is the one life we have to live, and we don't have to live it apart from God. We can live it with God. Uh, I quote him a lot, but uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux would talk about that third coming of Christ. The first coming is his birth, which we celebrate at this time of year. The second coming, we know the book of Hebrews talks about, it's the return of Christ to come and make things right. But the third coming, interestingly enough, of Clairvaux is again, not after the second coming, but in between the first and second. It's that way in which Christ comes to us again and again and again. He comes to us in our salvation. He comes to us in an ongoing process of sanctification. He comes to us as our spirit baptizer, the spirit uh, the scriptures will talk about. John came to baptize in water, but Christ comes to baptize in the spirit. He comes to us every Sunday as we come to the table. And we're told, this is the body of Christ which is broken for you, take and eat. This is the blood of Christ which is shed for you, take and drink. And in very important ways, he comes to us through others. As the Apostle Paul said, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so as we, as the body of Christ, go out and we do the work of the Lord, that is acts of forgiveness and of grace and of mercy and of love and of justice, then we are the embodiment of Christ serving them. And of course, ironically, in that way that only Scripture can do, we are both Christ and we are serving Christ because Christ says He is identified with the marginalized, with the hungry, the thirsty, the, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner. And so, as Paul would say, we are neither Jew nor Greek, we are slave nor free, we are male nor female, but Christ is all and is in all. And that's the mystery. It's the mystery of Advent, and it's the mystery of Christmas. So two weeks ago, we lit the hope candle, and we talked about um, becoming hope. So that the idea of becoming hope was an idea that not only are we anticipating the hope of Christ coming to us, but we become hope as we as Christians embody that and help others realize it, make it real in their lives. And then last week we talked about becoming peace. And again, not only does Christ bring us peace in our lives, but we are to be agents of peace in the lives of others. And then today, we're going to talk about briefly becoming joy. Not only 
is Christ our joy, but we should embody that and we should be the joy for others. That's how the economy of the kingdom works, right? We're not just blessed as an end game, but we are blessed to bless. We're not even just saved as an end game, but we are saved so that we can be agents of that salvation. We're not so much saved from the world as it is that we are saved for the world so that we can participate. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's something that we all do. So this Advent season, we've been opening our, or been including in our sermon times, these kind of confessions. Not confessions of sin, but kind of confessions of faith. And they've been pretty radical. They're not the kind of things you would typically say. So two weeks ago, I asked you to all repeat after me and to say, I am a mother of God. And remarkably, you all did it. (laughs) And then it made me wonder, again, how many different things I could say that you would just repeat after me. Like you just trust me that much to say almost anything. So we nuanced that, of course. We talked about how that becomes a reality. It doesn't sound right, but it actually is right. And then last week, we had a different confession. We confessed that Jesus comes to still kill and destroy. Well, that doesn't sound right. Of course, he doesn't come to still kill and destroy in the way that the thief does. But last week's text in 2 Peter talked about the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. That thief is a holy thief. And what he steals, what he kills, what he destroys, is he steals our anxiety, our stress, our pain, our loneliness. What he kills is our disease and death itself. And what he destroys are those things that destroy. So that when the new creation comes, it will no longer be subject to decay. This is the beautiful vision that Paul gives us in the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, when he says that creation itself waits and groans for the day of redemption. So the time is coming where we will all live and death itself will be no more. So we come to today's confession. So are you ready? (laughs) Have you been waiting for it? Is anybody excited about it? Because after two weeks, and you know there's two more coming. So here's your confession today. Repeat after me. The joy of the Lord is your weakness. It doesn't sound quite right, does it? Because we know that Jeremiah tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So in what possible way could the joy of the Lord be our weakness? Isn't that just wrong? Have I confessed something perhaps I shouldn't confess? Should I now confess that confession? <laughs> That's funny because I use the word in two different ways, right? <laughs> Should I confess the profession? I don't think so. And here's why. That beautiful passage of scripture that Sarah read for us comes from the very end of the book of Isaiah. And this whole second half of Isaiah is kind of tilted. It's turned to a completely different audience than the first half. The first half is kind of talking to ancient Israel kind of before the exile and and prophesying things that might come. The second half is talking talking to the kingdom of Judah after it's been kind of taken into captivity. So let's think about that for a second. Who they were had long since been remembered as descendants of Abraham, that God made a deal with Abraham that I'll be your God, you'll be my person, and I will bless you, and I will make your descendants into a nation. And of course, that promise doesn't ever really get 
realized. It doesn't become a reality. He has a family, but you can't really call it a nation until, right, they are kind of um, in captivity, in slavery in Egypt. And so now you have a group the size that could be a nation, except they're not free. They're enslaved. And they're enslaved by the Egyptians, kind of one of the most powerful people in the world. And so God sends Moses, and Moses becomes the deliverer, the prophet of God, and they are set free. And as they are set free, those Hebrew slaves kind of become a nation. Uh, A conglomerate of tribes are formed into a singularity of of Israel. And so in some ways, the, the Passover... The, the, kind of the passing through the Red Sea, the Passover and the passing through the Red Sea is like their birth, right? It's like the breaking of the water. It's the birth of a nation. It's the, it's the fulfillment of a promise to Abraham that his family would one day become a nation. That gets realized, that promise comes to fulfillment with the exodus and the passing through the Red Sea. And now we have this huge group of people. And God has promised them not just to be a people, but it's, you can't be a nation without some kind of a geopolitical group kind of needs geo, right? It needs some geography in order for it to, to be, some kind of sense of borders. And of course, that, that happens as, as they, they occupy kind of ancient Canaan. And all of that seems to be kind of trending upwards until um, Israel says, well, we want a king, Everybody else has a king. And God says, you don't need a king. They said, but we want a king. And God says, yes, but do you know what kings do? And they're like, well, everyone else has a king. He goes, well, you already said that. I ask you, do you know what kings do? Kings accumulate wealth and they accumulate power and they tax you beyond belief and they send your sons off to war. Like that's what kings do. They just monopolize things. And they're like, yeah, we want one of those. (laughs) And God's like, uh, he's shaking his head at Samuel. And Samuel's like shaking his head back at God. Like, what do we do with these people? And so they get a king. Saul and then David and Solomon and so on and so forth. And one of my favorite writers on the Old Testament says that the book of Kings, so in our Bible, Kings is split up into two sections, like 1 Kings and 2 in the Greek version of it, because the, there was a translation um, into Greek that the early church used, it was split up into four sections, first, second, third, and fourth. But in the Hebrew, originally, it was just one scroll. It, it was just kings. Not first and second, not first, second, and fourth, but just kings. And so uh, the guy I like says, we probably should have titled it Kings? <laughs> like, you should title it with a question mark at the end. Because it's not a story of succession that leads to success. It's a story of succession that leads to failure. Because Kings opens with the story of Solomon. And he's large and in charge and he's got all the stuff. And of course we know that he's wise and we don't want to tell the story in some way that he did everything wrong. But if you read the list or the description of King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1... And you compare it to the list of a righteous king in Deuteronomy, they're exactly opposite. He does everything that God said kings do that you don't want. 
he accumulated all the food and he accumulated all the horses and he accumulated all the chariots and he accumulated all the spears and he accumulated all the money and he accumulated all the wives and he accumulated all the other women, right? And so he's, he's done. He's done everything that God would say that kings do that makes him look like one of his father-in-laws. He had 300 father-in-laws. Um, but one of his father-in-laws was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he looks like all the others. And of course, that, that breeds exactly what you might expect it to breed. It breeds a succession of failure. So it starts with a unified kingdom under Solomon. But right after that, immediately, the kingdom divides. Right? His leadership does not produce a successful future. It produces a broken future. It immediately breaks after Solomon. And the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are at odds with each other. And they're at odds with their enemies around them. And they're starting to kind of assimilate more and more in kind of unhealthy ways with, with the various cultures of the world. And the northern kingdom doesn't like the fact that the southern kingdom has the temple Right? And the northern kingdom doesn't have one, so they make their own altars and they try and build their own temples. And then they start to build other altars and other temples to other gods. And things really start to fall apart so that the northern kingdom eventually is destroyed by the kingdom of Assyria. And the southern kingdom limps along for a few more generations, but then it's destroyed by, by Babylon. And so by the time you get to the second half of Isaiah... You have people living in Babylon, and now the promise of God to Abraham has been both fulfilled and has died. The promise came to fruition, but it didn't last. It's fallen apart. These are dark days for Israel, for Judah. But then there comes this promise. The opening part of this section of Isaiah says, a voice is heard crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's how the Gospels would quote this passage of Scripture to talk about John the Baptist. And then it talks about things like the, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, the one who is by his stripes were healed, and the, the chastisements of our sins are upon him. And then it gets to passages like this one, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news. This passage of Scripture that Sarah read for us this morning is the same passage of Scripture that Jesus would read to the congregation in Nazareth when he preached his first sermon in Nazareth. It's just that Sarah read a longer portion of it, right? Uh, Jesus just read the first bit. But if we keep reading it, not only does the coming of the Messiah bring uh, binding up the brokenhearted and sight to the blind and uh, the, uh, the year of Jubilee, right? The year of, of, of setting things free. But it, it's an exchange of, of beauty for ashes, ashes, of joy in the morning. But then how does that stuff come, right? How, how does Jesus bring us those things? And here's the irony. Jesus brings us those things through utter weakness, like, what do we celebrate this time of year? We have, we, people like put out little placards in their yards like, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. What we're celebrating is the birth of an infant, a baby. 
Babies are not strong. Like babies are weak. Babies are like the definition of weakness. They don't do nothing. They they can't feed themselves. They poop on themselves. They can't clean themselves. Right? They can't really put themselves to sleep. You you have to work to get them to sleep. And then once they're asleep, you're worried about them, and then you have to make sure that you wake them up to feed them, they say. I'm not, I don't know that I really believe in that part, waking up a sleeping baby to feed it, but people talk about it. Seems to me, if you can get the baby to sleep, we can let the baby sleep, but don't take, you know, follow your pediatrician's advice if you have a baby. But I'm just saying, babies can't do anything. They have to learn to talk, and they have to learn to walk, and they have to learn everything. There's nothing that they know. They are utterly, utterly weak. And that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the, come, the coming of a weak one. But here's the kicker. The one who is weak, he does grow in wisdom and stature, Luke will tell us. But he never kind of comes in such a way that exerts the typical kind of strength or domination, manipulation or coercion or power in the ways that we think about it, right? And we should have expected it had we read the prophets well. Because when Zechariah prophesies and talks about the coming of the kingdom of God and how things will happen and how they'll come to pass, he'll say, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so we think, well, it's not by that kind of might or power. It's by this kind of might or power. And we think that the power and the might is just a different type. But I don't think that's what Zechariah is saying. He's saying when the Spirit works, the Spirit doesn't work through might and power. The Spirit works through the opposite of that, which is weakness. It's in our weakness that we know Christ. It's in our weakness that he knows us. He says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And unlike other kings who come and kill their enemies, Jesus comes and dies for his enemies. As Paul told the Romans, while we were yet enemies with Christ, excuse me, while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. And so it's it's, um, bizarre that anything could work this way. But it's exactly how the kingdom works. Our body politic has its own economy, an economy of the kingdom, a way that's different than the world. It's not just better than the world. It's not just doing what the world does and we're better at it. It's, it's coming and it's a way of being that's other. And that other way of being is a way of weakness. Now, when I was a kid, I would hear people say things like, it's better to give than receive. And as a child, I'm like, I don't understand that. Like, I like to get stuff. I don't think that's right. Because I get stuff and I feel great. And then I, I would give something away, mostly forced to give something away. And I'm like, that didn't feel that good. You know? I mean, take a four- or five-year-old to a birthday party, right? It's, it's torture, right? One kid's getting stuff. The other kids are just sitting there wishing they got stuff. It's, it's not good at all. 
Except I've, I've grown up a little bit since then. And now, if I can think of just the right gift to give someone, because I know them, and, and when they receive it, they realize that they're known, that they've been seen. There's nothing quite as joyous as that. Like, it really is better to give than receive. But that activity of giving rather than receiving is not an act of typical strength. It's an act of weakness. It's an act of letting go. It's an act of deference. It's an act of preferring the other. It's not an act of conquering or using power in a manipulative or coercive way that leverages it over against the other. It, it, um, it tethers our strength. Right? When we hold infants, we hold them in ways that are gentle. Like we're careful. Like back to the weakness of an infant. They can't even hold up their own head. Right? Their head is about a third of their body. Like, we should find a one-year-old here at the church and just come look at them and measure them. Their head's this big, right? And then their body's this big. It's like a third of their body is their head. I mean, if we stayed in that same proportions, we wouldn't be able to walk either. Right? That's one of the reasons they can't walk is because they're top-heavy. That's why when they learn to walk, they bobble back and forth. But we do grow and we do change. And when you hold an infant, you, you make sure that their head is supported. You're strong, but you're gentle. And I think this is the joy of the Lord. That we too can find that when we stop trying to just you know, conquer others or just win against them, and we see them as someone we can serve, whether that's our family or our neighbors or our co-workers or our fellow Oasians or anyone, strangers, we'll find that we start to embody the life of Christ. And not only do we receive the joy of, of Christ's coming for us, but we become joy for them. But to become joy for them, I think we have to be like Christ. And to be like Christ is to embody weakness. And joy will come. It's one of those amazing things. Joy is never obtained by trying to grasp joy. It's like smoke, you know. If you see some smoke and you try and grab it, you have less of it now than you had before. You've just dispersed the smoke, right? It's not obtained through the act of trying to obtain it. It comes to us when we're doing something else. When you belong to a community, when you have a sense of meaning, when you're doing something that has purpose, you'll find that what has come alongside of you is this joy. And that's where the reality of giving is our is better than receiving because it's in that act of, of deference that joy has become your companion. And that's what I think we should seek to live like in this Advent season. That as we continue to wait for the second coming of Christ, which is our hope and our joy in the future, we live in the present 
by kind of embodying that presence of Christ that has come to us. And we do so through acts of weakness. So say it with me one more time. The joy of the Lord is your weakness. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.